Welcome back, everybody. On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Devin Bodoni of Lycan Precision in Seattle, Washington. On each episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world, and I try to help them tell their story. How did they find bike frame building? How did they get into it? How did that go for them? How great was it? How hard was it? Uh, Perspectives and ideas, you know, some people really like doing things by hand, old school. Some people really like an engineering-oriented approach. Uh, some people are more into business. Some people are part of the Tin Shack Alliance. And so I like to talk about these things and tell people's stories and document it and share it with everyone. And this week, our guest is Devin. He, he nowadays, he runs Lycan Precision, which is essentially a CNC machine uh, job shop. They do a lot of work for various customers, some of whom are in the bike industry and some of whom are not. And then they also have their own web store, uh, is lichenprecision.com probably. And uh, but anyway, it's some bike frame building components, dropouts and chainstay yokes and and uh, and a really cool disc brake tab mounting tool. That's when when people email me and they ask me if I make a tool for mounting a disc brake tab, I say, I don't, but Devin sure does, and then I give them the link. And I always refer people to Devin. Uh, they do great work. And so anyway, I wanted to tell his story. I ran into Devin at the machining trade show in Chicago, IMTS, a couple weeks ago. And I said, you know, I need to get you on my show. He's done some really cool work, made full suspension mountain bikes, and then uh, kind of gotten more into the machining side of things. So anyway, uh, here's the interview. Here's his story. Well, yeah, when people ask how I got interested in bikes, I always just say that I'm a lifer because there's kind of not really a time before bikes for me. They've been my primary interest since I was four, basically. Wow. Not to say I didn't, not to say I haven't done other things because I've had lots of other interests and there's even been some other times in my life where, you know, cycling was not like the core interest, but it's certainly like the most consistent interest I've had in my life. It's kind of the most consistent thing I've had in my life aside from like my family and, you know, eating food. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So pumping air through bikes. your lungs. Yeah. Uh, apart from that. Yeah. 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 Like the, the basic fundamentals of existence uh, for me uh, involve bicycles. Um, <laughs> so, so bikes, I go, my interest in bikes goes way back. And then I, just I grew up in a family uh my parents split when I was really young like one and a half or something they both remarried pretty early um and all four of my parents that I grew up with worked with their hands and made things and were self-employed um so I just kind of grew up in in a situation where making things was just kind of part of life um and my birth dad my father was a, an accomplished woodworker uh carpenter instrument maker and kind of uh uh like a hobbyist uh metal worker so we had like a little mig welder and he had a forge for blacksmithing and and okay. some other stuff um 
And he was just like kind of the consummate DIYer sort of to a fault. Um, but so especially with him, he, I just grew up with this uh, attitude always of like, if you want something, make it yourself. Like you can probably make it better than whatever the compromises that all these companies are making, which, you know, as an adult now, I'm like, Oh, that was maybe, maybe not the best advice, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've had to unlearn a lot of my DIY tendencies, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, me too. Also, you know, like I, something I catch myself saying really often the last couple of years is like, man, the things I used to do to save $20. And then nowadays, you know, you can't run a machine shop and like keep moving forward every month without spending just stupid amounts of money on stuff. But like that, that sort of like, I used to survive by being cheap. That was like, that was how I did anything because I certainly wasn't, you know, I wasn't making the money. I was just mostly not spending it. That was kind of my whole angle. And, uh, but you can't really, you can't really get anything done or run a machine shop very well. You certainly can't build it quickly without being ready to pull out the checkbook all the time. And so it's been tough. And then, and then it becomes a slippery slope too, because like once you start getting used to just solving your problems by writing checks, you need to be careful though, because you, you can't, you still, there's, you live within a finite world. There's only so many checks you can write, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I'm coming back around on some of that stuff for sure in my business as well in certain yeah. places. Um, but anyway, so he kind of instilled in me very early on this attitude of like, you can make anything you want. Uh, and if you set your mind to it and just kind of like let your, your passion, guide you so from a very early age it was sort of like something i thought of uh, of building bikes Mm -hmm. and then you know my my mom was a chef and ran restaurants all through my childhood um owned and ran restaurants and then kind of transitioned to catering when i was a teenager um and i worked with her, her quite a bit my stepdad is a goldsmith and um he kind of I started working with him like, you know, a few hours on the weekends, pretty young, maybe like eight. Uh, And he kind of like kept me involved by lending me money to buy bikes. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, like looking back on it, the things I was making were not, you know, they weren't things we sold necessarily. I wasn't probably even really helping that much in the shop, but I was learning. I was learning the trade. Um, and I was learning a work ethic, um, learning about how to work with debt and, you know, what it really means to get what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have like, uh, and, you know, experience of metal work going back very young on that side. And then my stepmom was like a landscape art- architect and my stepmom and my dad ran a, ran a small vegetable CSA and stuff and, Anyway, so I've just always had my hands um, into making stuff. So in terms of like, when did I first think about building a bike? It was probably when I was, you know, six or something, even though at that point I didn't really have the the capabilities or the tools. Um, and this was also, so I was mostly into mountain biking and BMX a little bit, you know, like trials was getting big when I was in my, uh, you know, 
early teens or a little before. And it was the era when like full suspension was just becoming really a thing in the mountain bike world. Disc brakes were really just becoming a thing. Suspension, honestly, was like still sort of in its infancy of, in any, in any way. Um, so there was all this crazy technology coming on board. It was all really expensive and it all kind of sucked. And, you know, in terms of its quality compared to what we ride now. Yeah. Um, and so as like a, you know, 10, 11, 12 year old, I was always just kind of like, I want to, you know, I want to make my own disc brakes. I want to like build a frame and I'd like, you know, get butcher paper and go through my dad's scrap, scrap metal tubing pile and get butcher paper and be like, do a full scale drawing on the wall of how I could turn it into a bike and stuff. And I never did. Um, but, but I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, and, and funny, like looping into the machining side, you know, super obsessed with disc brakes and somebody had given my dad a little Atlas Craftsman six inch bench top lathe at one point, mm-hmm. um, little metal lathe. And I'd run, so I kind of had free run of his wood shop from about like nine on not the table saw or the joiner, but pretty much everything else. Um, and I would just like make all kinds of models and swords and whatever in there out of wood. Um, so I'd make, run a lathe. You gotta make swords. <laughs> you gotta make swords. It's the classic move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, turns out like a uh, like a rock maple sword that's like got a bevel and sharpened on a sander will do some damage. <laughs> by the way, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, yeah. Like, you can mess some stuff up. Um, so I'd run a lathe quite a bit and I remember my dad always being like, you want to make disc brakes? You got to know how to run a lathe. And I remember looking at, you know, like I knew what a caliper looked like. I knew enough of like how a lathe functioned fundamentally to be like, I don't understand how that would work. Uh, and it's funny looking back on it now and being like, Oh, that's because they're pretty much all mill work. Uh (laughs) And my dad just at that point didn't actually understand, um, which is funny looking back on it. Yeah. I mean, there are like, you know, yeah. Like a hydraulic caliper has some turned parts, but yeah, it's no, it's mostly millwork. It's mostly millwork. And then like, even the rotors, I remember being like, well, the rotors are round, but those look like they're stamped. Like how would you cut out all those little holes? Uh It's like, well, you need a live tool lathe. You see? Yeah. (laughs) Specifically. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and uh, my first exposure to machining was really like my, my birth dad, the woodworker, he had a, a friend who was a metal worker who was a machinist. And a few times he had little projects that he took over to this guy's shop. And I remember walking in and just, you know, seeing all the machines and just being like, Whoa, this is wild. And, you know, looking at a three jaw chuck and just being like, Can, does it really just like hold the metal? Like, wouldn't it slip? How does that work? Um, and we'll loop back to that in a minute, but that's, that's who actually kind of was my entry point into machining like 20, 25 years later. Wow. Uh, it was that same guy. Yeah. Which was pretty cool. Um, but then I guess going back to cycling, uh, yeah, it was my primary interest all through my teenage years, um, up until about 16 or so. 
And 16, you know, like girls start to become interesting and have to take school a little more seriously, et cetera, et cetera. And then also they, they clear cut the little burgeoning trail network that was close by. Oh, that sucks. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it did suck. Uh, so I had like, this was, I guess, 2000, 2001. Basically, I had, you know, this is kind of North Shore era, like Huck to Flat era. So I had a, a Santa Cruz bullet that now is just kind of like just a bike that I rode around because it wasn't trails anymore. Um, and then about a year later, uh, we were doing something in school where you calculated your carbon footprint. Um, and I'd always, my family is, are the consummate hippies and I'd been, you know, hearing about global warming since I was a little kid. And we did this carbon footprint calculation of like what our personal lives produced and like what the impact was. I remember going through it and just being like, holy crap, like this is, like I understand that it's a thing, but seeing these numbers on this page were just kind of shocking. Um, and I think probably like just that day, I was like, okay, I'm just not going to drive a car unless I actually absolutely have to. So I just kind of committed myself to riding my bike to school every day. Um, and it was about... I think it was eight and a half miles one way. So it was like not a nothing commute. Yeah. Um, and I was doing it on that Santa Cruz bullet, like effectively a downhill bike, um, <laughs> <laughs> which when it was not the most efficient, uh, and pretty quick, I was like, I need a road bike. I'd always been just a classic, like mountain biker, anti roadie thing. I was yeah, just like it's made. So, it's so clicky. You know, like I get it, but I also, you know, yeah. I hate it. Yeah. Luckily, I think some of those walls are breaking down. Yeah. It seems like. Because or, of gravel. Or maybe those are just the people I ride with. <laughs> yeah, because of gravel, which is wonderful in its own way. Uh-huh. Um, so I convinced my mom to lend me some money. <laughs> Same old story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and bought a, what was it? It was a Le Mans Zurich. So like oh, a steel... Nice frame road bike but a decent bike i think it had ultegra on it um and a friend of mine in high school who just graduated um i knew that he was into road racing so i started commuting on this bike got super into like just the feeling of the speed and pushing yourself and um and kind of talked to him and i was like hey so what's up with this racing thing uh i think i want to try it out and he's like cool that's great but the races don't start until spring this was like october <laughs> i was like ah bummer but i think it was a good thing because i would have just gotten smoked i still got smoked but um so the next spring which was my beginning of my senior year or maybe that was my senior year of high school started racing um and just totally like fell into it you know fully neck deep um and after graduating, decided I wanted to become a professional racer and basically spent the next three years after that, like fully, fully deep into it, um, which, you know, I think maybe your early 20s is a good time for that. But looking back, I was like, geez, that's kind of, you know, learning how to support myself for the first time, living on my own for the first time, and then also just like trying to live like a monk and train 
like a professional. Uh, and then like you've met me, I'm not a small person. So I was fighting an uphill battle for sure. When I, I started in, in high school, I was 17, like still hadn't really filled out as an adult, you know, as a man, um, physically. So, and, but even then I was tall and on the bigger side. So I was like 185 pounds when I started. And by the time I was like racing at effectively a pro level, I was like 200 pounds. So I was like probably 20 to 40 pounds heavier than like most of the other big people in the Peloton. Yeah. Um, and so I was just kind of like giving it everything for, for three or so years. Um, didn't really have any other interest, you know, all of my past interest in making things and, and being creative and playing music, all of that just kind of like got pushed to the sidelines for about four years while I was deep into this. Um, I'd been super into snowboarding and a bunch of other sports all through high school as well. And all of that just fell by the wayside. And then I, I was racing kind of like, so like semi-pro cat to, I was on like a regional elite team. So we were going to some bigger races around the West and I was at the stage race in Nevada and there was some, uh, pro uh, American pro guys back from Europe, um, at that race. And I remember just being like how much faster they were. And I was like, I'm already working this hard and giving it everything I have. And that, and I still have this far to go. And I just kind of had this like, <laughs> well, also one other part of that, which the bike bike racers will appreciate is we were doing this loop. It was a, a road race loop. I think it did two or maybe three laps around like a 20 mile must've been more than that. must've been like three laps around like a 30 mile circuit or something. Yeah. So we like went up over a mountain pass down the other side, kind of into the middle of nowhere and then back up another mountain pass and down back to the start. <clears throat> I had tubular carbon wheels, carbon wheels with tubular tires and where I get dropped on the hill coming back and cause I'm huge <laughs> and can't climb. <laughs> and so I get dropped and I'm behind the, the neutral support at that point. And then I got a flat tire and I had to hitchhike back to town because there was no race support at that point. It was just like, you know, a line of gawkers and tourists who happened to be stuck behind this bike race wondering what the heck was going on. So I literally just had to like stick out my thumb and hitchhike back to town. I remember just like I was away from home. I just met um, this woman who's now my wife and I was just kind of like homesick and sucking so hard at this race and hitchhiking back to the car and just being like, what exactly am I doing with my life? <laughs> is, this, is this really what I want? I'm not, I've been telling myself this is what I want, but I don't know if it is. And that was kind of a, that was the, the beginning of the end of my racing career. Um, and I finished out that season, but I like had a little injury to my toe. I was like skimboarding on the beach that summer and like rolled my toe under my foot and couldn't ride and, and, uh, just kind of never got back on, never raced again after that. Um, which I think was good looking back at this point. Um, so that was my racing career. There were some highs in there and it was actually really fun for a while too. Like 
uh, it's always interesting traveling around the West and being like, oh, I've been in this random little town or I've been on this stretch of road at one point on a bike, you know, mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere that you otherwise wouldn't know about. Um, and after that, I, I took a pretty hard, hard stop on bikes in general for a decent few years. Um, I, at that, I'd sold my fork on my full suspension bike to a friend who needed one for his, like, he was racing collegiate mountain bikes and he needed a fork. And I was like, yeah, here, have this set a mountain bike without a fork. And it was, it happened to be that like the Santa Cruz bullet made in like 98 or 99 in an extra large had like a nine inch head tube, just like this unbelievably long head tube. Wow. And so you basically, yeah, so I was, I kept trying to find a used fork, but they all had the, the steers cut too short. Yeah. Um, I was kind of like, am I going to buy like a new, like 700 or a thousand dollar fork for a bike from 99? Like just didn't make sense. So it just kept sitting there. Um, but I kind of got back into commuting a little bit. I built up a, I turned that Le Monde into a single speed. Uh, my uncle who, was a fabricator let me come and just like chop some stuff out of it chop the dropouts out of the back of the the bike and make some like simple plate dropouts and mig welded them in place and it was it was pretty hideous but that i guess that was my first official like bike actually no that's not true early on as a as like a 12 year old i had this bmx bike and trials was getting super popular but i couldn't couldn't afford like the monty child's bike with the hydraulic brakes and stuff um and so i tried to modify this bmx bike to be a 20 inch child's bike so i put like a crazy long stem on it and mountain bike handlebars and front it got like a a uh, freestyle fork with a front brake and then the last thing of course is the bash guard for like <clears throat> when you do a little like hop up onto a box thing but you don't get your back wheel all the way on and you need to not you know what I'm talking about? How the trials bikes have like an integrated bash guard on the bottom of the bottom bracket. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know if I do know about that. Well, so they, yeah, they have basically, they have a super small front ring and then uh, a purpose built trials bike. Well, back then, I think it's changed. Like if you look at like Danny McCaskill's bikes now, they don't have this, but back then the thing for competition trials is there'd be some like welded bosses, like threaded bosses, and this little thing that wrapped around the bottom of the, the frame from the seat stays to the down tube that was about the diameter of the, the chain ring and had some grip on it. If you're hopping up onto something, you could kind of like land that on the, yeah on the, whatever it was. So an early, early fabrication project with my dad was making effectively one of those that could bolt on. Mm-hmm. So it was this big, hideous thing made out of like quarter inch flat bar steel (laughs) that we bent and bent and welded and made these big brackets and it was bolted on there and it was kind of kind of hideous but that was i guess technically my first kind of like bike modification project yeah um but yeah i came back i modified that into a single speed started commuting um like painted it all funky and and whatnot put flat bars on it did the whole the whole fixie thing. Um, <clears throat> and then I started working at a bike shop again, just as a mechanic to kind of get my, 
my feet back into it. Um, and then where am I coming around to here? Uh, so in this whole period that we're talking about right now, I had built a cabin in the woods, um, with, that didn't have electricity. It was like on a family piece of a small family piece of property that we had. Um, and I was kind of like, I don't want to pay rent anymore. I was getting back into kind of like self-sufficiency, sustainability, sustainable living sort of stuff. Um, <clears throat> I was like, I don't want to pay rent. We have this piece of property. I can't afford to do the full, the full like build a house the way normal people do it. So I was like, I'm just going to like fly under the radar and build this little and with hand tools and it won't have electricity. It won't have you know, any of the common, but we'll make it work. So for like, I don't know, like maybe 10 grand at most, we built this little cabin in the woods and my wife and I were living in it. And all throughout that period, uh, um, I was trying to figure out some way to make electricity for the winter because we were living with uh, kerosene lamps, um, which is very quaint but you fall asleep really early. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get a lot done in the evenings. Uh, trying to figure out a way to make electricity in the winter. And uh, I was looking at different ways of doing that, either like putting solar panels up in, the, in trees, or I met this guy who put these like thermal, I forget what they're called, but they're basically a, a, a type of wafer that when you run heat from one side to the other converts it into electricity. Um, and this dude at this permaculture farm, had built this stove that had a bunch of these built in a wood stove that would produce electricity and like trickle charge a battery in the winter when you had a fire going. So I was kind of looking into that and I was looking into steam engines and then this friend, I was looking at steam engines on YouTube and this friend walked up behind me. He was a little older than me and he'd grown up on this commune in India. Uh, and he was like, those are cool. Have you ever heard of Sterling engines? And I hadn't. So I looked it up and sent me down this crazy rabbit hole of these things that were invented in the 1800s as an alternative to steam engines. Um, and seemingly are a dead ringer for kind of what I was interested in doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tried to build some just in the jewelry shop. I had been working with my dad, my stepdad in the jewelry shop to support myself through my cycling career. Uh, and there was not nearly enough precision in the tools that we had to, to make a functional one. So I started looking at buying a little lathe. And then I remembered that my dad still had that six inch Atlas and he had moved down to Southern Oregon at this point. Um, He'd never gotten that Atlas lathe running. He didn't really know what was wrong with it besides that, like, something was missing. So I went and picked it up from him when I visited and brought it back and went to uh, visit that friend of his that he'd taken to me, me to visit as a kid, the machinist in town here where I live. Um, and he was like, oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just missing the compound rest. And then you can, on top of the compound rest, you put the tool post and... He's like, I'll help you make the tool post if you buy one of the compound rests. <clears throat> and I think he kind of expected me to never come back, but I 
I ordered a compound rest on eBay or something and showed up a week later with a little lathe in my trunk. And I was like, Hey, I got this. Uh, can you, can you show me how to use it? <laughs> um, and so he was like, Oh, sure. So he basically, we went in the shop and started the basics on the lathe and we turned a little like a old school lantern style tool post. Do you know what that is? Yeah. You ever use one of those? Yeah. Yeah. Just a, so just a little bit. A yeah. I don't style. like them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're a pain in the butt. <laughs> they, they are. Yeah. For some things they can, I used one for a long time actually. Um, and they are not good for repeatability if you're having to change a lot of tools, yeah. but they, they can be kind of flexible in a cool way. Yeah. Um, uh, suffice it to say, I don't use them anymore, mm-hmm. but <laughs> that's yeah. what I initially you're, uh, you're a Takasawa lathe doesn't have that. <laughs> no, no, it does not. Uh, okay. I'll try and, try and wrap this up so anyway he helped he helped me make that thing and the second we started cutting metal i was like oh this is this is what i've always wanted to do i just i kind of knew it but i'd never just been able to get my hands into it yeah and as soon as we were playing chips i I was just kind of like this is what i want to do for the rest of my life it's so awesome anyway it's really fun yeah i was like i can make the things i've always dreamed of making like so just in that moment, I was like, if I wanted to make some disc breaks now, I think I could do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's this whole stretch of period where I'm getting back into cycling, living in this little cabin, started machining to work on these Sterling engine things. And that was another like kind of year or two. And I was getting more and more into the machining, um, quit doing jewelry work and was kind of like pushing towards maybe an engineering degree or, and I'd found some other jobs, you know, learning CAD and stuff like that. Um, and then it kind of, kind of culminated just in this moment where I was like, I just realized one day that I had all the skills I needed at this point to build bikes if I wanted to. Um, and <clears throat> I had gotten back into mountain biking pretty heavily. I was riding. Uh, my friend and I had gone on a trip down to Oregon to ride and we were driving home and I was kind of like, Hey, we could, we could do this now. And this friend happened to be my childhood riding buddy too. Like all through elementary school, we'd, we'd ridden mountain bikes together and then reconnected over it as adults. Um, and he, he had become a very good welder in the interim. He'd done a lot of like, motorcycle exhaust and like pretty, pretty amazing TIG welding. Um, and so, yeah, we were just kind of like, we could, we could build bikes now if we wanted to, let's, let's come up with something cool. Let's make the bike we've always, you know, that we were talking about, like at this point it was like, let's make it longer travel and let's make it also climb better. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and so I kind of like sketched some stuff on that drive home. And I was like, ah, oh, this probably won't happen. There's no time for it. And then like the next morning I went for a ride and crashed and separated my shoulder, my AC joint and my shoulder. It was pretty bad and it couldn't work for about a month. I was in a sling for like three and a half weeks. And so the next morning after that, I was kind of like, well, I guess I'm stuck here on the couch. I can't do any of my paying work. Uh, I'll start actually designing this bike. Um, and so that got me 
kind of down that road during that whole period when I, I couldn't work. Um, me and a couple of friends kind of went and did some shop tours of some frame building shops in the area and learned a little bit more about the process. Um, and then once I could start working again, in addition to my, my normal work, I started kind of working on some fixtures, some tools to, you know, put the frame together and evolving the design. And it probably took another, I don't know, six months or a year before I had the first frame built. Uh, but yeah, that was, I guess that's the very rambling entry into my, my frame building world was <laughs> the two sides of my life building stuff and, and riding bikes finally coalescing in my early twenties. Yeah. I think uh frame building and bike fabrication has a way of pulling people into like manufacturing and making things who otherwise maybe wouldn't have found it. I think that's true for me. I mean, I don't know, maybe I would have figured it out someday that I really like all of these things and it makes perfect sense that I should be in CAD and I should be <laughs> running CNC machines and I should be, you know, working for myself. I think that's a good fit for me and whatever. Maybe I would have figured that stuff out eventually, but I got to say for a long time in my life, I just, you know, I was really focused on other things. And, and I think there's a lot of people like me where they, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't take shop class in high school and they didn't, know from they didn't just know their whole life that they that this was right for them but maybe they found it eventually and then they're like oh this makes sense yeah this this actually makes perfect sense <laughs> like you said that about yourself and uh, that's true for me too because as a young person i knew that it made sense for me you know like my my dad had a wood shop in his basement and he would make stuff from time to time and then as a kid Sometimes I'd just say, dad, let's make something. And he's like, well, what? And I was like, I don't know. It's just fun. Let's just make something, <laughs> you know, but it's like, I just wanted yeah. to be doing that sort of thing. And, and I, you know, like, like a lot of kids, you know, you're playing with connects and Legos and Lincoln logs and all that crap. And you're, uh, you know, drawing doodles of things that you wish that you could make and, and all that sort of stuff, you know? So like when I feel like I was kind of close minded to that, for a period of maybe 10 years of my life or something, I thought that I was going to be a musician or whatever else. And when I finally kind of came back yeah. to that and found it essentially through bikes, I was like, Oh my God, this makes such sense. And like, I'm not good at it now, but I think I'm going to be good at it. Cause I really like it so much. And, <laughs> and yeah, now I would say, yeah, I yeah, feel like a it's a good fit for me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. There was a period where I was kind of like, just took it for granted that I was good at making things, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't think it was going to be a part of my life necessarily in high school. Like there was a minute where I was, thought I was going to be a professional uh, stage actor. Like I got really into drama in high school. That's and looking awesome. back at that, I was like, what was I thinking? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think this is a much better fit. Um, but it was funny, like, at, you know, doing acting shows in in high school, like I would be playing like, you know, I went to a small school, so it's not a big deal, but I might be playing like the lead male role, but also like doing most of like the set building. Cause I was like one of the few people who knew how to use woodworking tools and could put stuff together, you know? Yeah. And I just kind of took that for granted for a long time. Um, and then coming back to it, I was like, Oh, maybe it's not that maybe I do. Maybe not everybody is actually made to build things or make things. And I do have something that I should 
um, I don't want to say like a gift, but you know, like maybe it is a calling and something that I should be furthering in this life instead of just kind of like setting aside. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it, I think it mostly has to do with interest. Um, maybe some people are really interested in something and they're just not good at it. You know, like they have no talent, but they have the interest or something like, um, do you know the movie Amadeus? Um, I haven't actually seen it. No. Oh man. It's good. It's, it's good. It's long. Well, anyway, the, uh, Mozart's rival, <laughs> he loves music so wholly uh and he has the ability to see it but he's a mediocrity he can't he can't actually compose music the way that mozart does and it kills him and it drives him to be a tyrant but anyway you know i that's totally (laughs) an aside but the point is um the point is that uh basically you know i think that all you really need most of the time is the interest and that if you're so interested in a thing that you will become good at it because your interest will propel you through all of the the learning and the struggle and whatever and but that maybe isn't completely true maybe talent has something to do with it i don't know i i like to think that if you're just if you just really try you'll figure it out but i think that is absolutely true and i think the realization was for me was was like oh i have this interest and i have a talent and that might be a little bit unique and something I should pursue because of that, not something I should set aside in my life and, you know, try and pursue other things just because I'm not good at them and I want to, you know, struggle or become good at something that is innately hard. Cause like, obviously this trade will, will become hard if you pursue it. <laughs> yeah. It's not like it's all, all sunshine and roses by any stretch. Yeah. Um, and the bike, getting into like prior to bikes, I was strictly doing manual machining and my focus was kind of like doing repairs for people and like making new machines, you know, like custom machinery and stuff for, for people in the area. But it was never going to be really a viable business. I don't think where I am. Um, and the bike, when I got interested in the bikes, I was kind of like, in order to do, like I'd been toying with the idea of getting a CNC mill for a while. The uh, that man who had first shown me the lathe stuff, his name Dave. He had just like a prototrack uh, CNC mill that he'd used for some of his projects, but he wasn't super comfortable with CNC work. He was definitely like a consummate old school yeah. manual machinist. But he was kind of like, you should maybe experiment with this. Like it could be really good for you. Um, and I'd started learning CAD already prior to that. So I had some design capability. Um, and so I'd been sort of toying with the idea and shopping around a little bit. And I'd found this, uh, converted bridge port, just like a standard series, uh, series two or a series one, just like your typical. I think it's like, a series one. Yeah. Yeah. Series one like a standard series one bridge port that it can been converted with a centroid control conversational control. Mm-hmm. And like, I did not know what I was doing at all. Um, and didn't really have anybody to show me, but I had bought one of these and sort of toying around with it. And when I started designing that bike frame, I was like, Oh, like this is going to require a lot of CNC parts. Um, and that was really kind of what pushed me into doing cnc work in the beginning so i like to say that the frame building that i did was not really good from a 
you know, business standpoint, <laughs> but it, it was like my, it was my education effectively into CNC work and a lot of design work, which was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, the potential that, you know, trying to build bike frames and bike components and, you know, any of that stuff, the potential that that has to teach people about, you know, CAD and design and manufacturing and about, you know, welding and, and even, you know, lessons that you can learn about business and marketing and management and, 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 you know, your own personal development and whatever. It's just, I think, uh, it kind of depends on how you approach it, but you can get so much out of that. It's pretty amazing. And, um, it doesn't need, you don't need to be looking to develop yourself or something, but I think a lot of people find that for me, I've found a lot of, you know, I just kind of have like, I found frame building when I was 20 and I'm 32 now, and I've been pretty steadily working on something related to bike frame building every year since, you know, like it's been a pretty constant force in my life and I just wouldn't be the same person. And I don't know that I would have found it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the interesting thing I always say about bike stuff is like both from a design and from a manufacturing standpoint is that it's like, uh, well, I always joke that it has all the, the complications of aerospace work, but yeah. it doesn't have the money in it like yeah. aerospace work <laughs> because, you know, effectively we're, we're trying to design these very lightweight structures that are strong and in what is effect, what is in reality a pretty constrained space. Yeah. Um, and, but then there's a, you know, there's a pretty hard cap on what you can charge for a bike. Granted yeah. that price is going up, but you know, it's got to stay within reason. Yeah. We're not making and, 22 parts or whatever. And if you do want to charge that premium, premium price, it's like, you know, there are people who do it, but they're not necessarily busy. And the ones who are, they've, they've like turned water into wine, you know, like it's a miracle that they can do that. Like that's not an easy thing to do to charge that top of the market. Typically you have to provide people a sense of fashion and a sense of exclusivity. And you have to, you have to make your value proposition known to a wide variety of people because you need to be good at some sort of marketing. And there's just so many things that you need to do. So yeah, effectively it's like most of us can only charge you know, a, a, a more modest figure. And even then it's like people's expectations about what to spend on this stuff are, have all been conditioned their entire lives based on, yeah. you know, cheap manufacturing yeah. and scale economies and all that. Yeah, for sure. But all that to say that it, it is like a very good uh, place to cut your teeth for sure as a designer, as a fabricator, as a business person, because um, you're not, you're not given any favors. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so it's the, the parts are challenging. I, I have to say like, you know, our shop does a decent amount of bike stuff. I don't, I was going to try and, you know, get a hard number for what percentage of our business is, is bicycle industry related, but I didn't have time today. Um, but my, my gut would say probably like 40, maybe 50% of our, our work is, bike industry related um yeah. and in general they're they're not the easiest parts that we make <laughs> you yeah. know they have often a lot of remove material removal 
you know, thin wall, uh, thin walls are, you know, in some way or another, pretty flimsy parts, uh, relatively speaking. They're not usually too tight on tolerances, as you know, which is, which is nice, except for a few key features. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they do, they do pose a lot of interesting challenges to the machine. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard making that. Sorry, I'm distracted here. Uh, it's hard making that stuff to the <laughs> level that you would want to always. Let me adjust my microphone level here. I hope I haven't been with too hot of a microphone this entire time. Anyway, uh, yeah, no, it's hard making that stuff and making it so good. And then, yeah, people's expectations. Like I saw you've been making chain rings for uh, for Arn, Aaron, and uh, yeah. they're amazing. But, you know, it's like, yeah, people's... Like I'm looking right now at the bike hanging in my bedroom. I have like a like a non-round, like an oval chain ring from Absolute Black that I bought five, six years ago. Yeah. That's got just, yeah. and I mean, that was back when like 3D tool paths were like more of a novelty, but you can see all the 3D tool paths and it almost looks, I don't think it is actually generatively designed, but like the, the spokes on it are all spindly and spider webby and it looks almost like generative design. And it's just a really cool looking chain ring. And I don't know what retail on that was. Maybe it was over a hundred, but it wasn't a monumental amount of money for like how complicated the design and the yeah. machining work is. And and like they're the high volume mass produced option. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. wild. Uh, I was actually having a conversation yeah. with my friend today about how like if I was like eighteen again and I for some reason wasn't go to college, I was like, I think I would start like a lawn care business <laughs> or something like I think that it would, you know, I'm maybe talking out of turn here, but like, I don't think it would be terribly hard to get some business experience and like be outside and like breathe the air and like make some money and like learn some things about life. And then like, you know, actually make money as a young person instead of just like, you know, going to school and not produce anything. And then like take those lessons forward and do a different thing later. And I'm like, that sounds kind of cool. And then you think about how hard it is to like begin to make your first dollar in something like a, you know, a bicycle business is really tough. Yeah. Yeah. My, I've got a friend who has a multi-million dollar lawn care business. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) Probably a very, a very good way to go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and certainly the machining businesses, like we were talking about the other day, it's capital intensive. It's uh, you know high cost of materials and labor and and everything. It's 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 no no easy feat to make it work out uh, financially. That's for sure. Yeah. So um. So tell me some more about with your story then how you went from developing, you know, your first full suspension frame to then building up more of a machine shop to where you're at now. Yeah. Um, kind of sort of parallel simultaneous paths. I was still doing machining cause obviously I wasn't making money selling bikes. Um, especially initially. Um, so, like I, I don't know if I actually said it, but yeah, the first bike I built was a full suspension uh, VPP, the you know Santa Cruz and Intense Virtual Pivot Point. That patent was still valid, um, and I was sort of like thinking about you know trying to move this thing towards the business. So I didn't want to infringe on their patent, and then also the 
DW link patent, which I think is probably still valid at this point, you know, was in existence. So I was kind of trying to like thread the needle between those two designs, those two patents, and came up with a design that ended up having some um, design challenges that were sort of just inherent to the inherent to the design, which was unfortunate. But um, I did, you know, tweak it quite a bit and make it a pretty a pretty good bike. It was a little bit for people who are like super hard charging. Um, it didn't have enough uh, bottom out resistance in the suspension. It was a little too linear, um, which was basically it, it's its fault. Um, but so anyway, I started on this design. I built the first one, which became like my personal bike for a few years. Um, and then I did an iteration of it for a friend who had known as a kid who was a woman who lived down in Tahoe who was uh, racing like semi-professional enduro. So I made her an iteration of that. And then I, the third design I did as a uh, Kickstarter. Um, and it was, I think, pretty pretty polished. It was a pretty good bike. Um, I took that one to NABS in 2016, I think, as a new builder in oh, Sacramento. Cool. So I just, just had the one bike. Yeah, one bike and a table deal. Um, and during that time, I'd upgraded from the TNC Bridgeport. I bought a Fadal. Um, what was it? Like a 93. It was kind of not the greatest machine, but it was a good starting machine. Um, I was still in the like, more iron is better no matter what. <laughs> phase of, of machining uh and it was a uh it was like an eight thousand pound mill that but it only had like a 20 by 16 travel on the table so you could really only get like two coat vices on there um and you couldn't do any big parts um so i bought a fadal and i was doing kind of some custom machine projects and i did this which ended up being a long project. Also, great learning experience, not a great financial experience. Um, I was asked by asked by uh, some friends who were starting a kombucha business to build a automated bottling line for them. Um, they've been looking at kind of like used beer bottling lines, but you know, didn't they didn't want to use beer bottles? The other options were a little too more expensive, a little too much. Ex- little too expensive um and me being overconfident and naive was like yeah i can build you this custom one that uses the bottles you want for the same price as a used line (laughs) um so yeah it was a it was a good it was actually very stressful so i was doing this this kickstarter and this simultaneously and i didn't really have time to do to do either well uh i did make the bottling line and they have been using it for the past, I think five, well, no, six years. Wow. Um, yeah, but it took, it took like six or seven months to finish. Um, I didn't, I think at the end of the day, I didn't make any money on it probably, but Mm -hmm. I did learn about automation and, you know, I learned a lot about like the fundamentals of automation and programming PLCs and, just kind of like, you know, what happens when you 
put a bunch of caps in a thing and you need to figure out how to get them all lined up the same direction and then on a bottle <laughs> without anybody being involved in it. Turns out those are not simple problems to solve. Yeah. Um, so that was happening simultaneously. It was like, uh, I think the Kickstarter, I, I got like seven frame orders through that and then another five or something locally through friends. Um, and I did get all those frames out over the next, you know, eight months or so. Um, but sort of in that process, realized that, um, one, the bikes I wanted to build, these full suspension steel bikes, uh, it was going to be a really hard sell or not a hard sell, but it was going to be very hard to, to make money doing them just because of the part count and the complexity of the frames and whatnot. Yeah. Um, at the price I was trying to charge. Um, and I was getting more and more interested in just general CNC work and enjoying that. And kind of at that point I decided like I might start building frames again, but it's not going to be, not going to be my, my day to day. I had had the idea that I would like, you know, maybe do machine shop work <laughs> and weld frames while the machine made parts, you know, the thing we all dream about mm-hmm. turns mm-hmm. out that, you know, y- you know, you have to be a lot more involved in the process most of the time yeah. than, than what we would imagine. Um, and so it just wasn't realistic. Also, I'm in a pretty small space. Uh, so it's effectively a two car garage. Like it's built like a shop. It's a pole the pole building but so we have like 12 foot ceilings inside and good lighting and you know purpose built purpose run electricity and stuff but it's the actual interior space is only is 800 square feet and then we've got a covered covered enclosed but unheated area in front that's another 250 square feet so trying to have like a frame fixture fabrication welding area plus cnc machines plus thawing and material storage and everything all in this space was not really working out. Um, and so I just kind of had to, to call it on trying to do both, but that did sort of open the door to, to making more frame parts, which I think is actually more what I'm interested in at this point, which is, was cool to come around to that, <laughs> even though it took me a while. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so, so you've been uh, doing that's... you you had bought that Fidal and then what you had bought some like forty by twenty old CNC and then you brought your brother. Uh yeah. Let's see. I had the Fidal. Then I also yeah I bought a uh, ninety nine Perco forty twenty. That's what that was. Like a, yeah. Yeah. And it was a beast of a machine. It was like a fourteen thousand pound machine like way too big to have in here really and then it came with a lot of problems like right away the the the, mo- the main motion control board took a dump um so this was like i think i bought the machine for like something ridiculous four thousand bucks three thousand bucks pretty low considering um but there was a couple tail telltales which i should have paid better attention to (laughs) than I didn't. Um, And like a week after I got it back, 
the motion control board died and that was like a almost $9,000 fix to replace it. Yeah. In the process of dying, it it happened to die. And maybe I've told you this story before, but it happened to die while I was calibrating the tool changer. So the tool change, the double arm was underneath the spindle head and the way that it died was the the Z axis went wild and sent the, the Z down into the tool changer arm. Yeah, that's br- so, I remember you doing a repair and posting about the repair and it looked like very serious repair work. Like it nothing about that seemed easy. Like no, nothing about it seemed straightforward or quick or cheap. <laughs> yeah, it was hell. It's uh yeah. Thankfully, yeah, that's why I don't buy used machines anymore <laughs> to be blunt. Um it's fine I guess if you have time to work on stuff, but if you're trying to make chips every day uh it was it was awful so yeah it broke the the end off of one end off of that arm so luckily i still had the fadal and i was able to use that to modify the arm like machine a a receiving pocket into it and then i was able to like take measurements off the other end and make a new a new like pocket effectively that goes on the end and you know screw it in place and the hardest part was the shaft that the double arm um, spins on mm-hmm. and it goes up and down mm-hmm. in the like tool changer uh, gearbox yeah. that had bent. Um, and so I had to go to a friend's shop with a press and do some very strategic bending with like a, a dial indicator like, yeah. measuring the deflection. And then it was, uh, yeah, not very fun. It was a multi, maybe a multi-week process. It was, yeah, it was a thing. Wow. So I had the Fidal and then the Herco, and I had both for a while, but the Fidal wasn't getting much use at that point because it kind of was just redundant. Um, and then in 2018, I went to IMTS and saw all the new fancy machines, and I'd been kind of thinking of <clears throat> getting a getting a BT30, like a RoboDrill or a Brother, for a while, I had been thinking of getting something used to replace the Fidal and kind of have like a small parts machine and a big parts machine with the Herco. Mm-hmm. Um, but I came back from that and, and convinced myself that I needed a new machine, <laughs> which has has turned out good. But at the time, looking back, and I was like, wow, that was some, that was some risky financial <laughs> decision making at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, basically kind of like if I absolutely have to, I could make this payment. And I think, uh, I think we'd still be able to eat. <laughs> um, and it has worked out. I've been able to take a lot of work that otherwise I wouldn't. Um, so about the, the first brother then and sold that at all to a local machinist who works at the, the Navy shipyard here, uh, in our County. Mm-hmm. And then I guess about a year later, uh, sold the Herco and bought a second brother. Cause once we had the brother, uh, the Herco just basically wasn't getting used. And when I did use it, I was just kind of frustrated with it. Yeah. And it didn't, it did very, you know, it, it did a handful of things better, but that was such a small percentage of what we did yeah. that it didn't seem worth keeping. Um, 
and so bought the second brother. And right around that same time, bought a used lathe, used CNC lathe, uh, which was a 89 uh, Hitachi Seiki, which was actually for its time, like it was a pretty rocket ship of a machine. And honestly, it's like still, like its specs are still pretty current. Um, You know, I think at the time, Hitachi was one of like uh moriseki's main competitors yeah um moriseki ended up buying them and then just sinking the brand effectively oh really um yeah they bought it and then killed it more or less (laughs) as as far as i can tell (laughs) yeah yeah so if you if you buy a hitachi at this point your uh service is through moriseki but they don't do a great job yeah from what i understand wow uh, but it, was, it was a cool machine, but, you know, it, like, leaked cooling everywhere. Yeah. Um, the work holding it came with was kind of, like, not really what we'd want. So we were, like, doing a lot of swapping back from, like, uh, it happened to be the big bore version. So we'd have, like, some jobs we'd put on this, like, monstrous three-jaw chuck. And then, but we didn't want to run everything on that or, like, invest a bunch in, like, jaws for it. So then we would switch to the call it chuck that it came with, but that was just like a, a five C. So like only up to one inch. Wow. And it was just kind of like this weird, awkward thing. And I was like, I don't want to, I paid like 3000 bucks for it. I was like, I don't want to go buy a, a 3000 or $4,000 chuck for yep. this machine, not be able to put it on a new machine. Uh, but it was pretty cool. It had that same quick change tooling system that yours, that your lathe has. Yeah. Um, which I really appreciated. That was awesome. Is yours automatic or do you have to get out tools to take the tools in and out? You got to use a, I have a Bondhis eight or six millimeter T handle wrench that I keep at the machine. Yeah. Yeah. This one was pretty rad. Like you just pushed a button and it popped out. Wow. And then you pushed a button. It was like, it was like full on, like that's awesome. state of the art. Yeah, mine is yeah, the VDI 30, which is pretty common. VDI 30 and VDI 40 are pretty common on all sorts of lathes, different brands. But yeah, um, but I've seen similar ones because these have mine has like a like a round shank that has like sort of a rack and pinion thing going on. It's not a rack and pinion. It's like a it's yeah, like the round shank has like a rack cut into it or whatever, like rack gears, and oh. then. And then when you tighten the screw, it kind of drives like a, it's not like a pinion gear. You're not spinning a gear when you turn the screw. You're like driving like a wedge that has gear teeth in there. And then that has the effect of drawing it back and uh, making good face contact with the turret. But anyway, yeah, it's cool because you can take the tool holders in and out really fast and easy and they repeat pretty tight and it's pretty rigid and... I think VDI 30 That's and 40. Than what I had. Yeah, I think it's a little bit different, but um, it's probably similar. I've looked at all uh, Hitachi Seiki uh, lathes and they look sweet, but yeah, I think the tool holders are a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, these actually were like a dual contact taper, just like you would have in a mill. Oh, wow. But short. Um, and then there was like literally a little drawbar in each station wow. with a hydraulic actuator. Holy cow. Um, that sounds way yeah, more yeah, was, way more sophisticated. Yeah, it was a cool machine. Uh, but we got, so, in the bike industry job, um, there's a guy local to me, Dan, uh, Forager Cycles. Oh, yeah. Um, 
who makes the the cable cherries. Are you familiar with those? Yeah. Yeah. I know so I know Dan right because uh, I follow Dan, but also he was one of the early adopters of the frame fixture that I make and sell. So. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. I got to yeah. know him through conversations, and then I followed him since, and and then I saw that he developed the cable cherry which is a really cool product for anyone who doesn't know the cable cherry the cable cherry is like a little cable end cap that's actually machined it's a little tiny ball and it's got a little allen set screw and you put it on the end of your cable to keep it from fraying and whatever and they come in all sorts of pretty anodized colors and are you still making those um well i think business has slowed down a little bit um i think hopefully it's going to pick up again for him but um, so we haven't made any for several months. Um, he did just actually swing by a couple of days and pick up some of the inventory we had a couple of days ago, I should say. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of how we got into this talk of sour lathe was he had initially like done a few prototypes, I think on his own just to like test the concept. And then he had found me, I think through Instagram and sent me like an RFQ for, you know, 10 or something. Or maybe it was maybe it was even like a hundred, but not not a huge number. And for obvious reasons, the price was too high to be viable um, at that quantity. And I was like, "Sorry, this is kind of like what it's going to cost if, for those." And you know, I'd love it for to be less, but it, this is what it would be for a hundred units or fifty units or whatever the the number was at that point. Um, and I think so. He had found another shop with Swiss machines and they'd done his first run for him. Um, and then when he was ready to order more, they, they weren't getting back to him. And so he just kind of reached out and was like, Hey, do you know of any Swiss shops in the area? Uh, I need to get more of these parts made. Uh, and I jokingly was like, Oh well, no, well, if I was smart. I would buy a Swiss machine. And <laughs> he was kind of like, Oh, well, if you're serious, let's talk. And I was like, Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> um, and he's like, cause I need to have a, many thousands of these made. And I was like, all right, like, well, let's chat and I'll figure out how to do these. Um, so we, we talked for a bit and he placed a large order, several thousand. Um, and I was basically going to buy a live tool subspin lathe to do them and was kind of convinced that that was the way to go. Um, and was looking at used machines primarily, looked at some new machines, but uh, the price was a little high for what I could justify at the time. Uh, and a, a mentor of mine, a friend and mentor, he's probably 10 years older than me, runs a, a shop with like maybe seven people in the Seattle machine shop. Um, he was kind of like, you know, he was looking at the, I was talking to him about the delivery timeline and like what I needed to, you know, how I was thinking of making them. And he was kind of like, you know, everything's going to have to go perfect for this to work out with this new machine, used machine. He was like, it's probably not going to go perfect. So you should figure out how to make some of them right now with what equipment you have. And then, you know, give yourself a little breathing room for when the new machine comes in. Um, and so we ran, we had originally planned to do them on a live tool lathe and I figured out a way to do it with turning little round blanks on the, on the lathe and then milling the, the holes and, or, 
you know, drilling the holes and tapping the, the cross hole in the mill in a fixture in the brother. Um, and after doing them like that, I was kind of like, you know, this isn't actually that bad, but I don't know if this old Hitachi is going to survive 11,000 of these, you know, ramping to max RPM every 45 seconds. Yeah. Uh, so it had already blown a, a spindle drive actually. Um, luckily the shop I bought that from was this old aerospace shop and their, their method, they'd been, it had changed owners, but like the owners had come, the new owners had come from within the shop. So like the guy that I, who owned the shop when I bought this machine had started working there in like his early twenties or something. Now he was in his fifties and he was like, yeah, when these machines first came out, the, our, our business, he was an employee at the time. And he was like, we bought three of them. And then as each one successively died, we'd strip all the still decent parts off of it and hang on to them to replace or to repair the, the other ones. Um, and that was just kind of their methodology. Whenever they bought new machines, they would buy like, they might start with one, but then they would buy multiples of the same so that they had cross compatibility and stuff. So anyway, that machine came with like a mountain of spare parts, which mm -hmm. did come handy. So it had already blown a spindle drive. So I was like, I don't know if it's going to survive doing 11,000 of these little balls. So instead of buying a, a new live tool lathe, we just bought this Takasawa. Uh, so it was a new, well, it was a demo, like a showroom machine. Um, that effectively new. And uh, it's been really good and made a lot of those little balls. <laughs> yeah. At this point, I don't know how many. 15,000, maybe more. Yeah, the uh, that sort of workflow, I don't know how much to assume our listeners know about the nitty gritty of CNC machines, but you know, like you can have a, you can have a lathe that, a CNC lathe that has live tools that can do milling and drilling and tapping and, and a subspindle so it can do part transfers and so that it can, you know, finish machine apart and then start the next one and start the next one and you can just load like a 36 or a 48 inch long bar of material and you can hit start and it'll just loop a program and make part after part after part. That's kind of the dream. It's automated. And uh, anyway, you can do that. And something that I found is that, you know, for me, like 85% of my parts or something are machined part, like milled parts, and only 15% maybe are turned parts that need to be made on a CNC lathe. And so I have a CNC lathe that I got a similarly good deal on. I paid $2,000 for it and it's been pretty good to me. Not a whole lot of issues, thankfully. And I would like a better lathe, but like, it's just too good to kick it out of bed. And then like the kind of lathe I want is about a hundred times as much money, you know, like to go out and buy a brand new <laughs> subspindle live tool lathe would be like pushing $200,000 by the time you had the live tool holders and the collet chucks and everything. It's just astronomically expensive. And again, it's only like 15% yeah. of my, my revenue stream. And I think I would grow into it. If I had a more sophisticated lathe, I would, I would start releasing more products that included that. I would get like certainly frame components, you know, head tubes and bottom bracket shells and seat collars and all these other turned parts, you know, even some round dropouts or something you could do. And so maybe I would, I don't know, but, but anyway, at this yeah. point, I do a lot of what you're talking about, that process with the cable cherries, where it's like you turn a blank on a lathe that's an old 
or in your case, a new one, but like a relatively simpler machine. And you're not asking that much of it. It just needs to create a blank that has the proportional diameters and good surface finishes. And then you take those blanks and you load those into a milling fixture where you're holding a bunch of pieces and you cut your features into them. And it doesn't work for everything. And there's a scale limitation. You know, it's you still have to handle the parts between the one machine to the next. So it's not as automated. And at scale, the cost of the hand loading adds up. But for someone like me, it's like, a lot of these parts that I think would be a perfect candidate for a live tool lathe, they're actually like, you know, 40 parts a year. That's that's actually kind of a bad candidate for a live tool lathe because, you <laughs> really know, bad, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like there's just it's volume. You can't pretend like you're going to magically have more volume. Like if it's a if it's a component that goes into my frame fixture stand and there's one part per frame fixture. And if I have a good sales year and I sell like 50 of them or something, you know, like that's still only 50 parts a year. And then, you know, yeah. it's just the volume isn't there. So. Yeah. And the setups on those lathes are just terrible from everything I understand. It's like, if, if you're making many hundreds, they work out. But I think if you're doing small quantities, they're, they're really char challenging to make them pay for themselves. And yeah. they are expensive. I hear mixed things about that, and I always wonder exactly where the, the truth is. Because, you know, like if you have, like I know they have live tool holders that take like an ER collet, so you can get like a shrink fit ER adapter, and then you can keep your tool set up, and you can notate the gauge line, and, you know, there's tricks to getting set up again quickly. And if you have simple parts that rather than needing nine live tools, they only need one or two, then it's like, I guess those would probably set up more quickly. But even still, like... The amount of time, yeah. the amount of time that it takes to handle the parts when you're doing a run of only you know forty or a hundred pieces, it's like that that part handling time is actually not that bad compared to you know that the setup on the lathe is going to suck. Yeah, and the setups on the mills are so easy. So uh, easy. I have thought that. Yeah, I I think potentially a direction we might go in the longer run is buying one of the brother mill turn machines they're you know they're effectively a mill with a little bit of turning and then because i think those setups will be much more straightforward and then treating it as a cell with our two axis lathe where the two axis lathes can bar feed blanks and so we can kind of gain because that's really like you know that's the reason a live tool lathe is a is a realistic like uh, or, or a compelling thing, right? Is that you can bar feed it and you can so easily automate it. But, you know, we would bar feed our two axis lathe to turn blanks and then just feed blanks into the, into the brother mill turn for the complex milled features. You know, you, you're not limited to the tooling that you are on a, on a turret lathe. You're not limited to the access and clearance issues. Yeah. Um, it has its own limitations, but I, I'm pretty intrigued by that concept as a as a cell for for mill turn work. Um, and then you have like, yeah, a lot of some of my friends who run big live tool lathes. Also, they're like, well, seventy percent of the time, this thing is just doing straight turning work, and we have you know a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar machine that's doing work that a hundred thousand dollar machine could be doing. 
Yeah. Uh, or even a two thousand dollar machine. <laughs> or even a two thousand dollar. <laughs> Although probably yeah. not as efficiently or reliably or enjoyably, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is it is a it is an intriguing thing to to try and parse apart and you know where the where the breaking points are where all the different solutions make sense, and then when you bring cost into it, of course, then that whole adds a whole other layer yeah it's it's kind of wild like like my main mill that supports you know like my business doesn't have any revenue except for the physical goods that i sell and ship like we don't consult we don't sell online courses or subscription services or it's really all we do is sell physical products even though i feel like a lot of what we do you know like like a lot of the work that i do isn't just to like machine it and put it in a box, you know, like a lot of the work is customer work or it's building maintenance man stuff for the shop building, or it's doing my accounting work or it's marketing. But like still the only thing that actually pays is putting it in a box and shipping it after somebody clicked buy now on the web store. And, and really my, my CNC mill supports almost all of that. And it was a hell of a lot of money for that machine. But in the, in the world of CNC machinery, it was actually, I think a pretty good value and it's been very dynamic and it's worked for a wide variety of parts that I've made. And, uh, it's pretty wild. And then you look at like a more specialized machine, you know, like, like, like one of these lathes that you can like, Holy cow, they're so cool. They're so badass. I really want one, but like, it's just, you know, like you would need such a monumentally bigger quantity of stuff of like a like I do like 200 different parts, which is just nutty. And then you look at like, uh, you know, like a live tool lathe like that. It would be really good if you had a narrower product line and you said, OK, I'm going to buy this machine and it's only ever going to make these four different product numbers. And like once every two weeks, we'll do a job changeover and then it'll start running the next one. And it'll just run that thing like lights out day and night for like another week or two. And then we'll switch and we'll do this other one again. And, you know, something like that, where yeah. it's it's doing a very high volume of a very narrow number of things. And what yeah, what's appealing about it is that it it's like such an automation powerhouse, but like, that's not really actually the best fit for what I do. And it's also maybe not my, my first need. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I will say though. So when in, in Chicago, yeah, usually every two years, there's the IMTS trade show and, uh, Devin and I, you, you and I were hanging out, um, there like two weeks ago or something at this trade show and that was lovely and we got to see all these great machines and i was playing in the the uh, there's this company productive or production productive robotics anyway they have robots uh collaborative robots cobots and i was playing with some of those and then the guy gave me a sales call the other day and I'm not in a position where I can buy a robot right now, but like, I think there's probably one in my future someday. Those are so cool. <laughs> I want one what of those. You, yeah, I mean, they're very cool. What would you use it for? Uh, I think I could use it for a lot of things. And I think that potential is exciting. Definitely part loading on the, on the mill and on the lathe would be a big thing. Um, because you know, there is a fair amount of that. And then even like the fiber laser for marking parts is a really big job. And then even I yeah. was thinking more like, um, 
like even on our automatic horizontal bandsaw, there are some of the bigger parts that get sawn where it's like not a simple thing to have that run. You know, again, it's kind of like here's a bar that's 12 feet in length and it's going to make a cut at a certain length and then it's going to feed it again and again and again until the bar is exhausted. Uh, and yet that's not a super simple thing to automate because like when you have something like I have a, a, two different parts that I make that are a fifth of a bar it's like 29.8 something inches or something like that. It's like a fifth of a bar uh, if you subtract the curves and all that. And anyway, yeah. those pieces and they're, they're what, inch and a half by two and a half inch aluminum bar stock. So they weigh like 10 pounds a piece or something. And if you just if you just have those feed into like a cart, then like by the third or the fourth one, they're going to start log jamming into each other. And when it goes to feed the next one, it might not actually be able to feed it because it might be like, you know, log jammed. And, and then not to mention there's like coolant at the sauce. So like, where's all that coolant going? And like, if these parts fall off of the cart, now are they going to like put a big, you know, like is the sharp corner going to dink into the floor or something? And it's like not a simple, simple problem. Like you can fix it, but like, I don't do a ton of it either. And I was just thinking, I was like, man, yeah. even, even in a case like that, you could have, you could park the the robot, which is very easy to program. You could park it next to the bandsaw and then you could have it on a cycle that when a part appeared, it would pick it up and then it would like swipe it on like a little belt sander or something. And then it would put it on a cart in a nice pile. And it's like, I can think of a lot of potential uses. And I think, I was telling the sales guys, like the question is, is it actually reliable? And is the the amount of like upfront work that you have to do to get it going and reliable, is the juice worth the squeeze? And those are the questions that I'm interested in. There's that. There's also, so my Uriel, who you also met at IMTS and um, people here may know from Austere Manufacturing and his, um, his buckles and bike packing straps. Um, which are awesome. You know, I talk, which are awesome. I'm wearing one on the belt right now. Um, he and I talk very often about automation and, you know, we've kind of both been on this, this kick to, uh, well, he's further along than I am, but using these spindle grippers to do automated part loading in our machines. Um, you know, and it's very easy to like get sucked into the appeal of robots and like they're seeming like, like they seem so, you know, they are, they're purpose built and they're so versatile and all this. And then he's, he's done a really good job of challenging me and being like, well, what about this? And what about this? And one thing that I always come back to is like, okay, so a UR robot or whatever costs around 30, $35,000 for one that can pick up a reasonable payload and have a reasonable reach and when I look at any of these problems in my shop, I'm like, okay, so if I were to throw $35,000 at this problem that wasn't a robot, what would it look like? And then could I do that same solution for, say, a third of that cost, even you know, even with my time included? Um, and that's been a really interesting uh, sort of thought experiment to pursue. Mm. Um, and this, I think this applies to like anybody who does anything, whether it's CNC work or you know, phone builders figuring out how to mite their tubes or whatever. It's like, it's really easy to get sort of sucked into the way people have always done it or the way you see other people doing it, the way that seems convenient. Um, but doing this, this spindle gripper automation has really driven home that like sometimes 
everybody really does just kind of follow the leader. And there are good ways that aren't the way everybody's doing it. They just take a little bit of thinking outside the box and a little bit of work. Um, so I would just like, you know, thinking about that saw thing where you're like, okay, so if I were to spend $30, $30,000. Exactly. Solution, yeah. No, that would be a really bad use of it <laughs> yeah. to buy it just to pick up parts. But you know, it's like, right. it gets the gears turning when you think about, um, because for people who don't know that much about, you know, collaborative robots or whatever, the trend is, and obviously the idea is to make them so easy to program uh, and easy to use that like because uh, because in the machine shop and everything it's always like you're like okay so what's the what's the theoretical efficiency of a process once it's in place and then what's the upfront investment you know in terms of time or tooling or something you know what's the setup cost basically and so the yeah. industrial robots are like you know the yellow fanic arm robots and stuff and they are powerful and they are fast and they are precise and they're badass but they're also stupid and if like you need to put them in a cage and you need to keep the people out they will hurt you and uh they could hurt you they could crush you people die and so collaborative robots on the other hand versus industrial robots collaborative robots are generally slow low power but they're typically very easy to program instead of being very complicated to program and um and then you know they're force sensitive so like if they bump into you or something else they just kind of stop and uh they're intelligent to some degree or they're they're not powerful enough to like do total havoc and so anyway what's exciting yeah. to me about it is that like these things have gotten to the point and i'm sure they'll get better where they're so easy to program and they're relatively dynamic to a wide variety of tasks that you know you can you can have yeah. them you could really program one to do a, an incredibly wide variety of things. And what I was telling the sales guy when I was talking, because they cold call you after the show, you're at the show and you're wearing a badge and everybody wants to scan your badge. And then, you know, of course they take that as an open opportunity to like, you know, sales call you. But the guy cold called me and he was like talking to me. And I said, my, my real hesitation with this is just that, yeah, like, uh, is, is, you know, is it actually going to be reliable? Because in the machine shop, you can generate a mountain of scrap really quickly, which costs you a fortune and demoralizes <laughs> you. So like it needs to be truly reliable and the setup time, you know, like I do such a high mix of things and I rarely make more than like 200 at a time of anything. That's pretty rare for me. And so, you know, if it takes an hour or two to get the program set up and then like you're kind of half babysitting it for a while just to like keep your eye on it and make sure it seems reliable, then like it's just not usually going to be worth it. And so for me, I think a big part of the appeal is not to make a return on investment the first month, but it's to like adopt a process that like, you know, you can start to figure out where to apply it and where it makes sense. And also, I would say that a lot of these, even at like thirty or thirty-five thousand dollars, it's a hell of a lot of money. But it's it's like less overwhelmingly expensive than than I would have assumed, and so like that's kind of exciting. Yeah, yeah, I definitely am intrigued as well, and was you know kind of on the verge of like trying to make it a uh, goal about a year ago, and then went down this other this other path with the spindle gripper. Um, it's been it's been a good way to definitely, and I won't say that I'll. I'm not going to say I'll never buy a robot, but mm -hmm. um, at least with part loading, the spindle gripper is very cool because it's like 80% of the efficacy at like 10% the cost. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Is, the the uh, I think when I look at that, the thing that I see as an issue is just that like, 
the majority of my parts, you know, I mean, I have some pretty big parts and I have some pretty small parts and I have some round parts and like, I'm sure you can make it work and maybe I can make it work more than I realize. But like, I see Uriel using it with like the little cam buckle clamps, which are high volume and relatively narrow, you know, very small amount of variability. There's like four parts or something, five parts. And so, uh, you know, not hard to see how you would make it work for a process like that and requires a little more imagination for me to understand. Now, maybe you don't need to automate everything. Maybe you shouldn't look for a one size fits all solution. So if a robot begins at $30,000 for a new collaborative robot and for a third of the cost, you can buy a gripper and you can't automate everything, but you can automate a lot of the smaller part, higher volume stuff, then maybe that's still worth looking at. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, kind of what I've been doing is like being like, okay, if, if I could fit 50% of my parts, you know, in in a system that I designed, then it's absolutely worth it. And so like, it's, it's attempting in the job shop world, right, to like try and have a one size fits all solution. And you really have to like, narrow it back some somewhat and be like, well, it, you know, maybe we still do take every job that comes in the door that will fit on our machines, but maybe like one machine takes all the random stuff and the rest goes on this other machine. Yeah. Um, and I and also, this week I've been working on this. Yep. Yeah, go ahead. Um, well, I would also say though, you know, you have a little bit of a different situation than me. Like for me, I have a product line. And so like, for instance, I mean, the stand that we produce for the frame fixture, like the lower rolling base and then the bench mount stand, I have zero interest in making those parts. They're fabricated parts. I couldn't even, multiple times I've tried to get a, like a local two blazer vendor to quote me and to make those parts for me, but I can't get them to. So like I'm doing the fabrication work on these steel tubes and then I have to like take them to a powder coat vendor and none of this is so hard to do or so terrible but like here we have like a pretty high overhead machine shop and I have like these big machine payments and all this other stuff and then to be sitting there like using you know like angle grinder and chop saw and like belt sander and you know deburring <laughs> tubes and then tig and like we don't have a mig welder so we like tig weld them which at the volumes we do i don't know that it's really worth buying a mig welder but it's certainly slow and expensive to tig weld them although there is a pride in your work thing it's pretty cool but like but anyway it's just <laughs> like it's really tedious and the opportunity cost of like you know when you have someone like a someone like a skilled welder fabricator who all that they can do while they're doing it is focus on the task. Like if you get a CNC machine going, it's easier said than done, but there's at least the potential to let the machine run and then pack a box or respond to a customer email or something. But like when you're fabricating, yeah. that's pretty much all you're doing. And so uh, I feel like I, I charge a hell of a lot of money for this frame fixture stand and I hope people aren't that offended, but it's just like, you don't really want to buy it from me. <laughs> Like, I'm not the one you want to buy it from. If, if you know, if you really don't want to make it yourself, like I have one and I'll sell it to you. And I'm sorry that it's expensive, but at least it's an option for you. So you can't say that I didn't give you an option. But like, uh, I want to do a YouTube video when I can get to it. And I just want to like, you know, I would share the PDFs that I've made for these different parts. And I just show the process so that it makes it approachable. And I'm like, there's nothing hard about making this. It's just that like, if you have to pay me to do it, 
you know, with the cost of materials being what they are and the runaround with like managing a powder coat vendor. And then I really hate shipping them too. Like it's not an easy thing to get into a box. And so it's like, you know, like don't buy it from me. Like here's how you make it yourself. Anyway, I don't know where I'm even going with this anymore. I hate fabricating these things. The point is, (laughs) this is how it's related. The point is that for me, I need a CNC lathe, even though it's only 15% of my work. And, you know, like apparently I need to be doing some fabrication, even though I'd kind of rather not. And for you, for anyone who just takes jobs or doesn't take jobs, like you're never going to have the right machinery to do everything that comes across your desk. And you maybe don't need to worry about that. You know, like maybe you just, you say like, well, we specialize in the kinds of parts that you can make on a little 30 taper mill and we do it as well as anyone can. And like, we want that work. And if it's something else, we'll try and help you, you know, refer you to someone else that we might know or something. And so, you know, for you, it's like you know, maybe you don't need an automation solution for everything because, you know, you have a general purpose solution to manually load parts. And then you just kind of naturally, you can quote more competitively on these little parts. And hopefully that becomes more your niche. And, you know, if that's what you want. Yeah, that's kind of the direction we're going. We're not, we're not really in a position yet to be turning away work, unfortunately, although I'd like to get there. (laughs) Um, But but uh, yeah, this I'm actually this week what I've been working on is kind of setting up this spindle gripper automation to be more general purpose. So like, like you were saying, looking at Ariel's, you know, he has those things, you know, super tuned up to run his parts really fast, and and his uh, his macro program that runs the whole gripper thing is is relatively straightforward. It's it's close to the same one I started out with. Um. But just this week, I've been working on one because our our work is so much more high mix that, you know, spending half a day designing, you know, effectively a fixture like a tray and figuring out, mm-hmm. you know, the jaws and the gripper fingers and the whole deal was kind of, it didn't really make sense if you were doing less than, I don't know, three or 400 parts. And even at that point, it was borderline. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I've been working on this week is this new a new tray that's adjustable for different stock sizes. And just, uh, just yesterday wrote a new macro program. That's all parameter driven. So effectively I write my part program or, you know, program in, in cat and cam, like how I normally would. And then I have this macro where I just enter in the size of the stock and, uh, you know, what part program it needs to call. And, you know, assuming that the uh, offsets are set correctly and the trays in the machine, that's all I have to do. And then it it takes it away, um, which is pretty cool. It's right now it only does the first operations and then it's going to be the second op, second op as a separate program. Mm-hmm. But eventually the goal is to build a flip station like Uriel has parameterize that whole process as well and basically have this. And, it, and it's not, that's the interesting thing about starting to dip your toes into automation is that you realize that whether it's a robot or it's your mill acting as a robot, you always still have the same number of things you have to figure out. It's like with a UR robot, some of that stuff is figured out for you. But effectively at the same, at the end of the day, you have a bunch of parameters that you have to figure out how to fill in. Mm-hmm. And the more you standardize that, the easier it is. Um, and whether it's your robot doing it or the CNC machine doing it, 
it doesn't really care so long as you put the information in there correctly. So it's just streamlining yeah. getting that information in there, which yeah. has been cool to realize. Yeah, no, it's so cool. It's like such a bottomless pit of uh, just, you know, that's one of the things I love about, I guess, having my own business, but also being in metalworking trades and being sort of, at least sort of related to engineering and what I get to do is that I feel like there's just always more stuff to like figure out and to play with and to, you know, it's like you're just always going to be a complete total novice at a lot of the stuff that you do even if you try just because it's such a deep thing so it's like you know when you finally get caught up on this or that then it's like all right i get to dive into this finally and it's for someone like me it's just so <laughs> satisfying um i don't even feel like i'm that much of a you know machinist or a, a engineer most of the things that i do i just feel like i'm kind of scratching the surface and maybe i have a knack for some of it or some things i've been doing it long enough that i'm getting some baseline of you know familiarity and i'm doing all right but like you know, it's, you, you end up being quite a generalist because you have to be. And, and then it's, yeah. it's just kind of exciting that there's just like always more to, you know, sink your teeth into this next thing. If it, you know, so if you're wired that way, that it sounds like fun, like that's really special. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've certainly gone on to the uh, machining side heavily. Is there any other bike stuff we should hit on? Well, I wanted to make sure that I didn't want to yeah make I didn't want to run out of time to talk more about your, your, I mean, your business now. Yeah. Like you would say 40 or 50% of it is CNC machining projects that you do for other people in the cycling industry. And then, and then some of it is just other, you know, work that you do for people. You have your own product line. We haven't yeah. talked about that. So tell us about how you got into that and then what you offer now. I know you have like a, a disc brake mount tool, which is, cool as hell and then you have a handful of frame components and maybe some other stuff that i'm even forgetting about yeah uh let's see we i would say most of the stuff we do these days is just for other builders or through uh bike fab supply we've done quite a lot of stuff with andrew at bike fab supply um the stuff that we sell on our site right now are dummy axles and for tooling and dummy axles and and the brake fixture um, I, you know, I kind of wanted to do more of that, but the reality of my, my business and my life was I just couldn't really take time away to do design. And honestly, you're doing a really good job of it. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> I think also like the customer facing side of the business isn't my strong suit. Um, I like communicating with customers, but we just don't really have the bandwidth to, Mm-hmm. to be really involved with a lot of customers on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I haven't pushed more into the frame tooling side of things. So we have the, uh, we have the dummy axles and the brake tool. And then uh, for products, we do some single-sided yokes that are a clamshell version. Um, we do those, one that's designed for gravel bikes, and has pretty high clearances, um, and one that's designed for mountain bikes. They both are not like bleeding edge in terms of clearances, but like pretty, pretty up there. I think the gravel one will clear like a, a 50 inch or sorry, a 50 C tire on, a on 29 er rims with a, you know, pretty standard chain stay length and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. 
we do the round UDH compatible dropout, um, which has been a slow mover, but actually they're starting to sell more. I think now that a lot more big companies are kind of coming out with it, it seems like everybody's pushing in that direction, which I don't think is a bad thing. Um, the design is a little, as you've noted, I think a little challenging for yeah. uh, a hooded style dropout, um, which is unfortunate. Um, that's one of the tasks I have on the list for the next few months, whenever I can find some time is to, to do a new design that's fully compatible with the UDH spec. Mm-hmm. For those people who haven't dove into it, um, it requires a fairly large, like flat area on the outboard side of the dropout on the drive side, uh, where normally on a round hooded dropout, <clears throat> there'd be a hood that intersects with your seat stay. Yeah. Um, so doing it in a round size really requires a very large round, like exactly. inch and three quarters or entirely. That's not round. So that's yeah. kind of a challenge, but, I, I had uh, this summer I was waiting on another project and I started working on a UDH dropout design and I got pretty far into it. I got something that's most of the way done and I assume I will release it. But yeah, like you said, it's hard to make because like my criteria were that when I built bikes, I really my thing was I did not like the slot and tab plate dropout stuff. Like, I just think it's a really tedious way to fabricate, especially if you TIG weld. And so I'm not a fan of the plate style dropouts, although they, they can make certain parts of manufacturing plate style dropouts easier and more economical for sure. But like, I don't like building bikes with them. I, I don't think they're very fabricator centric. And then also when you have a hooded dropout, I, it, it's not insurmountable, but it's, super annoying when the uh the hub center line is not concentric with the hood flange like and there's usually there's a reason why when you see like a hooded dropout they're not because you know like just where the material needs to be for a derailleur hanger or whatever but like so i designed one but i mean yeah this is the diameter of the raw material that you would need to begin to make the dropout is huge and then the the width too you know in order to have a wide enough surface for tig welding especially like titanium bikes a lot of times you're working with straight gauge tube and so you you would like to have enough width there and i mean just the chunkiness of these is brutal and then you figure um on these ones uh you know if you want to do flat mount flat mount yeah if you want to do a flat mount mounting on the chain stay then you would need to bend the seat stays and then that kind of kills some of the benefit of the concentric hood thing i mean not completely but like some of the beauty of that then gets lost on this detail and if you wanted to do like an iso tab that because the the dropout is such a large diameter it actually kind of interferes with where you would do the iso tab it kind of screws with some of your options and so it's like well okay it's it's a really like dropouts are truly a very challenging challenging thing to get right and it's hard to appreciate until you like bang your head against it in CAD for a very prolonged period of time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that was a project we do those. Um, we've done some custom runs, not, well, not custom. They're the standard design, but we've done some make to order runs of those in titanium as well. Um, for, uh, I think just one builder so far. Um, we do our OGQ, dropout which has integrated flat mount 
bosses. Yeah, that's and cool. that is, yeah, I like it. Uh, we've been doing them for maybe three years now. That was a collaboration. So the original like aesthetic came from Josh Ogle, who I'm sure you know, yeah. uh, Ogle Component Design. Um, he kind of designed that. The original made some but wasn't planning to produce them and handed them off to us, to, to me and my friend Matt, um, Matt Fevergan. Um, yeah, the Quiver, who, Quiver Design now, Works. Quiver Design Works, yeah, he now works at Niner. As, I think he's one of their lead engineers now. Um, and so Matt kind of took took the, the model that Josh had come up with and reworked it and added in the whole flat mount portion, which was quite a bit of a challenge. Again, like... like um, UDH, not something that was really designed with metal bikes in mind, or at least not steel (laughs) bikes or titanium bikes in mind. Um, So we do that. That's been, we do probably, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred of those a year. Not a crazy amount, but a decent number. You definitely are seeing them pop up on a lot of bikes. Um, I think they have a really nice look. And then, um, we do. We did a sort of a custom run uh, for Pine Cycles, and that is a modular. It's like a, a hooded flange with modular inserts, so it can run um, a standard quick release, a twelve by whatever you want, like one forty two or one forty eight, um, and one with an integrated flat mount, and then also like a track insert. So we did that for Pine Cycles for their product release. At some point, um, that is going to be available to as just like a standard product on our website as well. That's but awesome. haven't released that to the general public yet. <laughs> um, what else do we do? Look at my little rack. We do our little axle lever hickeys. Yeah, those are cool. Just kind of like a fun little bling thing. Um. Oh, we do like a an old school double sided yoke as well. Yeah, that's that, like a centric. For anyone who watched my YouTube mountain bike build series, that was the one that I welded into that bike frame. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Um, so I think that's basically it on our kind of like uh, product offerings off the shelf, and then we do a fair amount of custom stuff for builders. So we're doing work right now with uh, Firefly, um, mostly turned components for them. We did their last batch, I think, of mountain bike flange or, or plate style dropouts. Um, done some stuff with Alliance, with Stinner, um, some things that are going through the Simple Shop down in Portland. Uh, who else? a bunch of different oh we're doing some parts for Reeb right now uh again mostly turned work for them uh got some stuff for them actually happening right now on our lathe uh like you mentioned these chain rings for for Aaron at arm yeah um and what else the cable cherries maybe into the future maybe not we'll see um and yeah 
I think that kind of covers it. There's probably a bunch of stuff I'm forgetting. As soon as it leaves the shop, I'm often just on to the next thing and can't remember. Those are all things that I had within sight right now from where I'm sitting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would say, um, yeah, I always, I don't know how many people reach out to you who say that I sent you, but whenever anybody asks me for, you know, machining and especially bike related stuff, I always send them your way because I know, well, when you were on the Within Tolerance podcast, you had used the term tribal knowledge. You were talking about how, you know, like having such a background in bicycles and knowing them quite well puts you in a position where you can really help those customers who come to you with like bike stuff. Whereas, you know, a general machine shop, in order for them to successfully deliver on your chain ring or whatever, you're going to need to probably give them like a pretty good part print, you know, like dimensioned and tolerance and, and, and in a lot of places too, they might just kind of want you to like know how to talk the talk or else they're just going to say like, we don't have time for this. And so, uh, and I would, to our listeners, I would say, if you're thinking about working with a machine shop for some parts, uh, and I would, you know, obviously reach out to Devin because, uh, if he's the right fit for it, I have a lot of confidence, you know, you you and the people you work with are going to do a good job of like delivering on the product. Uh, because like you understand that like a chain ring needs to be able to fit a chain and you probably have chains around or you would have a discussion and you would say, oh, you know, I tried this on a 12 speed chain and it's actually, it doesn't fit. Are you, like, are you okay with that? Or should we change the clearances or whatever? And, you know, that's the kind of manufacturing partner you would ideally have when you, you know, work on a project like that. Yeah, I think we have a pretty good understanding of from from working on riding, building, et cetera, bicycles, what parts matter and what parts don't. Um, exactly. Which sounds funny to like say which parts don't, but that is a real issue, I think, when, when approaching a general machine shop because, you know, as a machinist, when a part comes through, you know, if a part comes to me that's not bicycle related, that I don't know its end use, I have to assume that basically everything on it needs to be perfect, you know, yeah. within reason at, at the very least within the stated tolerance on the print. Um, and I'm going to put a lot of work into making sure that happens. Whereas on some bicycle stuff, somebody will send me a model, maybe a print or a very, ge- a very generic print. Um, and I can look at it and I can say, okay, well, I know this, these three things have to really fit like those parts definitely matter the rest just has to look nice and we can Mm -hmm. make it look nice and it has to be you know whatever the tolerance on this hood has to like match whatever you know uh, a hole saw is going to make but that's yeah in most cases like my my fixed string is going to require a tighter tolerance than the end user just to maintain you know consistency of of construction yeah Um, i talked to a few friends who were machinists who quoted bike stuff who didn't know bike stuff and they were like yeah i quoted this stuff i think it was way too high and i was like oh <laughs> yeah why and they're like well we were assuming all these surfaces had to be perfect and i was like oh no man like bike industry like a twenty thousand step over you know surfacing path is what's all what's all the rage right now it looks so mm-hmm. cool <laughs> you know and it's like that will never fly in you know aerospace or or medical or whatever um 
So anyway, I interrupted you. You're gonna. Well, I was just gonna say, yeah, the way that I do tolerancing on a lot of my parts, like I don't even have a print for most of them because you know, like I'm sort of the engineer and I'm the end. I mean, my customer is the end customer, but like it has to work right when it leaves my shop. So like I'm in charge of the QC and stuff. So like generally, I'm really monitoring thread fit and like you know slot width and that sort of thing and like uh, anything that gets bored or reamed you know like that needs to fit a pin or whatever those things are more critical and then most of it is just cosmetic like you know if the cutter is like pushing a burr or leaving a bad surface finish then that's a clue to me first of all that's probably not acceptable but it's a clue to me to maybe measure something but really it's like most things there really is no tolerance because like it couldn't hardly be so far out, you know, like these CNC machines are so like good at repeatability and accuracy that like, you know, it's not going to typically, it couldn't hardly vary more than a few thousandths of an inch um, or, you know, like a 10th of a millimeter or something without something else being very wrong, you know, like a cosmetic surface or something. And so like, all you really need to do is just make sure the things that matter are in spec and that like, it feels good and looks good in the hand. And as long as, yeah, like those things, and it's just knowing what to look for. Right. And so that's the whole point of like a part print or something is like, you see what it is and then they make a call out for the stuff that matters. And so, yeah, I think mean, it's important. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, it's kind of lost on them. You know, like they'll they'll send like a technical drawing or a CAD model and they'll say, just make it. And it's like, well, but like some parts of this matter and some parts don't. So like, you know, because like you don't want to spend a bunch of money uh, like ensuring the precision of a part that's irrelevant in terms of precision. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I really enjoy being able to offer that industry. Um we're, you know, we're not a great fit for someone who wants one of something unless they're really, you know, we do, we do a handful of one-offs for, for people who are pretty well established and understand that, you know, they, they will have to pay what it costs to make one of something. And, but it's usually towards something down the line, like it's an actual prototype, not just someone wanting to like build a bike with a unique part, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, but I do feel like there's a little bit of a sea change in the industry as a whole right now, um, in the United States specifically, and in custom building where, you know, I think everybody's a little crunched financially. Like the, the economy is just getting more challenging in general yeah. uh, for everybody. Um, and I think unless you have a really good niche and a really dialed system, making full custom bikes is a challenging proposition. So it seems like we're seeing a lot of more established builders slowly changing to kind of a, a little bit more of a, a, like a model range or batch build sort of, you know, batch build custom flare sort of uh, methodology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're getting more and more people kind of reaching out to us to to do a custom dropout, to do some little part, you know, but they're at a volume where they can buy 25 or 50 sets or something and, you know, make it, make it functional for me and for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's been fun to see that happening and, it, and it's cool to be able to provide that surface service because there just really isn't a lot else here. It seems like yeah. um, it, here being in the U S um 
to to do custom part or customized parts or yeah. small batch stuff. I saw the Stinner dropouts had Stinner engraved on the I think on the non drive side by the flat mount. Well, are those yeah. are those unique in any other way or is it just basically your dropout made for him with Stinner engraved? The latter. Yeah. Yeah. The latter. But I mean that's still totally awesome. And then it's like, you know, you can that yeah. that uh, I would assume based on the way it's fixtured when it's in the machine it's a really simple thing to add that doesn't add much cycle time or wouldn't particularly add that much cost. And so it's like, it's a really cool conversation you could have, you know, like uh, to say like, yeah, I want exactly what you already do, but just while it's in the machine, just add this one detail. And, you know, sometimes that's pretty, yeah. <laughs> pretty approachable. Yeah. It's funny. Engraving can be really time intensive, yeah, but also be. usually it's, it, usually it's not too time intensive if there's not a ton of it. But people always seem to assume it's really expensive. <laughs> and so often I'm like, oh, no, this is, like, this is the smallest part of the machining of this whole part. Mm -hmm. We have had a couple parts recently, especially, that were I was like, oh, man, that's a lot of engraving. Mm -hmm. but, um, but having a fast machine certainly helps with that somewhat. Yep. Yeah, no, really cheap, sure cheap so much. Yeah. But... Uh, but yeah, anyhow, that's cool. yeah, that's kind of our place right now. The bike, it's fun to still keep my my hands in the bike industry and um, you know know people. I've gotten two bike, I got two new bikes this year, both um, partially on trade, which was kind of cool. And one of them has a bunch of parts that I made uh, in it, which is awesome to get to ride a bike that you know kind of has my hands involved but i didn't <laughs> i didn't have to weld up <laughs> yeah um and uh be able to provide that service to the industry as a whole is is really gratifying for sure yeah. it's not usually the best the best money but i like being a part of it and and it's a cool niche to have yeah for sure i um i built myself a bike in like 2017 and i never loved it that much and then this year i changed it up quite a bit and I changed the tires and I changed the, the handlebars and all these other things. And I absolutely love it now. And the oh, feeling no. of, I mean, cause I've had bikes that I've made for myself a bunch of times, but, and also that sort of thing that we all hate, you know, becoming like a bike industry dude who doesn't even hardly ride his bike anymore. Um, I feel like I've, yeah. <laughs> I've taken a, I've taken a swing at that this year not that I ever stopped riding my bike, but like I, for years and years, I had a machine shop that was way too far away from home to like practically regularly commute. And now I'm closer to home again. And I have a good riding buddy who we talk business and we ride bikes on a regular basis. And it's been a really good summer for, for that sort of thing for me. And so it's like, so satisfying. Yeah. And this is on a bike that I made, but I would be it would be almost, I think it would be equally satisfying if it was like a, a bike that a customer of mine had made or something, or, or if I had like, for instance, for instance, like some, uh, oddity handlebars or some other parts on it, obviously it would be super cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty fun. And you know, when I was building trains, I kind of saw the writing on the wall a little bit and I didn't, I didn't want building bikes to take my joy out of bikes and, I think I would have gotten into production frame building and I could see that happening potentially. Um, so this has been a really nice balance for me to still make a decent amount of time to ride and be involved in the industry, 
Um, and yeah, it's just been a really good balance. Um, I do commute basically every day, most, most days with my daughter on the back of a cargo bike. That's awesome. Uh, which is pretty cool. And then, yeah, I got this new, this new bike from Chris at full moon, which is kind of like a weird freak bike that we've been talking about for a couple of years. That was pretty fun. It was like my, uh, my unicorn, like a half cross country bike, half gravel bike, half <laughs> bike packer bike. Um, 150% bike. It's 150% bike. It really is. Uh, and it's, it's really cool. Honestly, it's, it's not the best of anything, but it will do almost everything. That's awesome. Which is pretty rad. Yeah. I'm kind of at a point where I'm like, maybe I sell most of my other bikes because this one really does most of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I just got a read squeed, which yeah. has been really fun. Yeah. Well, and I bet you know how to ride that a lot better. I got one, uh, less than a year ago and I threw all the mountain bike parts that I had on it and it is a hell of a bike, but we don't really particularly have gnarly mountain biking right here in town. And I have never been a serious mountain biker. Like, I think it's seriously cool and I would love to be, but like, I'm just, I'm just not like a risk taker type and I never really learned how to ride that kind of way, you know? So it's like, uh, it's been a little bit hard for me to fully appreciate how awesome of a machine it is, but like it is a work of art. All of the engineering that Adam and all of the blood, sweat and tears that everybody puts into that bike is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's super fun. And I've been riding strictly hard tails for the last three years. Uh, so it's, it's definitely nice to come back to the full squish life and it's, it's a lot faster. <laughs> yeah. <really> fun. <laughs> it's so cool. Well, uh, yeah, you mentioned your daughter and I know you're a family man, so I'm not going to keep you any longer. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show. And uh, uh, yeah, it was awesome. And to everybody listening, I'm sorry that I so infrequently and sporadically create these shows, but uh, at least you got this one today and hopefully one again soon. But uh, thanks a lot, Devin, for being a guest on the podcast. Yeah, man, for sure. Thanks for you. Cool. Uh, Have a good one. See ya. All right. See you, bud. Bye.